firm. And so I was looking for some solid ground to stand on through that weekend and launch back here. There's also the sense in which the passage we're going into shows that there's nothing new under the sun. The church back then, several thousand years ago, was trying to find a grip itself. It was trying to find some solid footing itself because the church was going through some turbulent times back then. It was in a mode of destabilization. It was, you know, needing to find some firm footing just like we all do. For instance, Paul the Apostle, the one who founded the church, evangelized the church at Philippi, he's in jail. Epaphroditus, who was their senior pastor at Philippi, who came as a missionary to build Paul up, nearly died during that process, was sick almost to death. And he's communicating about that in Philippians 2, back to the church. You had mocking preachers who were out on display, preaching the right gospel, but doing it also while they were doing it, mocking Paul, saying, look, Paul didn't do it right. Look, he's in jail, and so we're preaching. So that was going on. And then you had this, this sort of group called the Judaizers that were inside the church that were promoting a Jesus plus gospel. And so they were saying, look, we believe in Jesus, but we believe you need to work and do works in a Jesus plus way to keep yourself right with God. And so they were twisting scripture in even this early church. So there was some fragmenting going on and some destabilizing that was going on and some threats to unity in the body of Christ at this moment. And even in Philippians 4 verse 2, we're going to be introduced to, uh, to two ladies, Yodia and Sentichi, which are by no means some sort of you know, afterthought in this epistle, like, oh, by the way, Yodia and Sentichi need to get right with God. No, they represented a possible church split because these two women were figureheads and prominent servants of God within the church who were having a disagreement that was public enough for Paul to put it on display in a letter, even without any explanation. He just mentions Yodia and Sintichi and how they're having an issue that needs to get reconciled. And so there was some serious destabilizing effects that were going on in the church then. This church needed to find solid ground, common ground, as I've titled the message, finding common ground. They needed to find common ground together, and they needed to do it right then. The unity was being threatened. And just as we in our own lives need to find a grip at times and find solid ground, the church corporately has to do that again and again so that it can be strong in its testimony to the world. How do you do that? Well, there's three words that you'll find in four verses, a three-word phrase that you'll find three times repeated in four verses. And these three words show where common ground is. The three words are in the Lord. See if you can find it as I find these phrases as I read the first four verses. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, 
rejoice. Let me read verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do you see that phrase that's repeated over and over again? I framed my outline around that phrase. In the Lord. I want to do a little classroom dialogue right now. Let's just say that phrase. You find common ground by finding yourself, and let's say it together, in the Lord. In the Lord. You do. Common ground is found by being, let's say it together, in the Lord. That's the common ground of the church. That's where you find stability. That's where you find firm footing and foundation to go on in life. And the picture here in verse 1 is one of standing firm in the Lord. And I'm going to just give the outline um, out front. Um, and we don't, don't you know, follow the outline on the PowerPoint yet. But, but I want to give away the three points and then we'll, we'll backtrack. First of all, you, you find common ground, and it yields three results. The first result is this, verse 1. Our common ground provides a strength of resolve. That's picking up on verse 1, standing firm, being, being strong in your heart to stand firm and keep going because you're in the Lord. All right, the second point I'm going to hit on is point 2. Our common ground, finding common ground, produces strong relationships. Yodia and Sintichi, verse 2, they are to agree, watch this, in the Lord. And then verse 4, this is where we have a strong witness. Our common ground projects a strong witness, verses 4 and 5. And you see this in verse 4, rejoice, how? Let's say it together, in the Lord always. In the Lord. That's the key, that's the main idea, that we are in the Lord and we find common ground by focusing on what we have in common. All right, first of all, our common ground, point one, provides a strength of resolve. What I want to talk to you in terms of here is in terms of your own heart emotion. That's what Paul is trying to fill up in the church right now. He realizes that the church was running on empty. Their emotional levels were being drained, and that's why he's calling the church to rejoice always, but he wants to build them up pastorally and strengthen their hearts. Each of you know that you have just so much emotion in the tank before you need to rely on the Lord in a way that will strengthen you and recharge your batteries to go on in life. That's what Paul is doing in chapter 4, verse 1. He, he does this by using several descriptors. He calls the church... First of all, my brothers. He says, therefore, my brothers. A very endearing, familial tone Paul gives here. He's, he's saying, whom I love and I long for. He's saying, listen, you are family to me. It's like when I saw my brother in North Carolina. He came to the funeral as well. And, you know, we're just automatic. They're, it's like... It's like we never left each other, and that's how true friendship is when you really love somebody and you really have this brother-sister or brother-to-brother -brother relationship. You know, the, the, the relationship just fires right away as soon as you see each other. And that's what Paul is introducing here, saying, you're my brothers. I love you. Remember chapter 1? He said he was praying that their love would abound more and more for each other and for God. And Epaphroditus, their senior pastor who had gotten sick in chapter 2, verse 25, was saying that he longed to see them soon. 
He was, verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. There's this longing, loving, sort of heart on your sleeve kind of appeal that Paul gives to the church. He wants to warm their hearts. He calls them my joy and my crown. What does he mean by that? You know what he means? He's saying, look, as a church, you are my top pupils. You're my number one students. I won you to Christ and you've been growing ever since. You're doing great. He loves them like friends and colleagues and he's been their mentor. And he's saying, you're, you're my prize. You're, you're the crown of, of, of the ministry. And I think he's also reflecting on um, what he had just written about them, how our citizenship Chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenships in heaven. He's saying, look, you're, you're running the race like a marathon runner. And at the end of the race, you're going to go into glory, into heaven. And it's as if you're going to be crowned like a marathon runner at the end of the race. You're my joy. He uses the word love two times in verse 1. He says, he says whom I love. And then at the end of verse 1, he says, my beloved. Same word. Have you ever noticed how... Love fills in all the gaps and complexities of relationships. No matter what's going on, if your heart gushes for someone and you love someone, it really does fill in some of the complexities of interpersonal relationships. And Paul is saying, listen, I want you to feel my pastoral warmth towards you in love right now. Very important for this church at this time to know that it is loved. Because look at verse 4 again. It says, stand firm thus. That word thus is in the original language. Paul is saying, look, because of this familial love, this warmth, because I'm trying to fill your tank pastorally in your heart, because I want your personal emotion to be warm right now, because of that, I want you, I want to call you as a pastor to stand firm. It's the first command in chapter 4. It's part of the application of everything that's been said so far in terms of the gospel, in terms of what we're fighting for, in terms of in terms of the truth, in terms of the testimony of Christ, Paul is saying, look, and this is like a military term, I want you as a church now to stand firm, to be rock solid in your stance for the gospel and the kingdom. Ephesians 6 talks about standing firm. Verse 11 and verse 12, standing firm in the evil day, standing firm against the schemes of the devil. There were enemies who were trying to undo the gospel. There, there, there was this possible church split that was going on right at that time. And Paul is saying, look, dig in right now. Put on the whole armor of God. Stand firm in the fight. Persevere. Keep going. So he starts by warming their hearts and he's calling them, secondly, in terms of not giving up. He's saying, don't give up. Don't quit. So easy to quit. Don't quit. If you ever go through a trial and you say, you know, if the trial just wasn't that hard, then I wouldn't have given up. He's, he's also, look at this. He says, stand firm in the Lord. And I want to make this very clear. Out of all the pastoral warmth and all of the pastoral care that Paul gives the church, the chief person who gets you through any trial is the person that we all have in common with each other, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does here. He says, look, I want to warm your heart. I want you to know that I love you and you love each other and I long for you and you're my joy and my crown. But guess what? You've got to stand firm 
with one chief person in mind, and that's the Lord. Stand firm. How? Let's say it together. In the Lord. Hey, you might be tempted to say, listen, if I had, you know, this brother with me or this sister with me or this friend or if I had Jeff Crotz with me, if I had this pastor with me or whatever, then I'd make it. Then I wouldn't have given up. Then I wouldn't have stepped back in the trial. But, but no, Paul's saying, look, you stand firm. How? With one person in the Lord. That's right. In the Lord. Because of Jesus. That's all you've got. I mean, when it comes down to it, when you're really making decisions morally or spiritually or attitudinally, when you're you're making choices in terms of how you are doing psychologically or emotionally, when you're making choices whether to despair or to rejoice, it comes down to one person, one chief person in your life. Jesus. Jesus. He is the chief shepherd in your life. And how you relate to him through your struggle is the difference between being destabilized or stabilized. Between having solid footing in common ground in the Lord or kind of falling apart. What does it mean to be in the Lord? I I like to reflect on the gospel in three ways in terms of the past, the present, and the future. The Lord saved you. Nothing can change that. Presently, the Lord is with you. He's promised that. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And then in the future, he promises to bring you home to glory. Past, present, and future, we are in the Lord. We're in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ, in the Lord. That's what you have. That's why you can dig in through the trial. It's why you can, you know, find firm footing and say, okay, I'm going I'm to stand firm in my faith and in my commitment to Christ because I'm in the Lord a chief idea here that um, we're going to stand firm but this main idea gets very acute into next into the next verse it's like Paul is talking about you know standing firm in general and then he goes right into a very concrete application in verse 2 and the concrete application is where Paul is actually naming two people in the congregation regarding a possible church split it's as if, you know, if it's Epaphroditus or whomever that's reading the epistle at this point, he's reading through it, and he says, in the name of Paul speaking, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi. You know, Yodia and Sintichi might have been nodding off, and suddenly they're like, whoa, right? You know, I'm named. And Paul is naming them for a very clear reason. He's not naming them to make them feel bad. He's naming them because he loves them. Um, You know, oftentimes Paul didn't name names. Um, Here earlier in chapter 3, he talked about enemies of the cross, but he didn't name names there. But here, he's very pastorally, very lovingly, calling something that's public to be addressed publicly because of its significance within the church. It's There's a conflict that has risen to such a level that nobody even needs to know the details in the letter about what's going on because they already know what's going on. They already know the issues and they know that something needs to happen between these two women because these two women are representing two different ideas that could split the church. 
This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the brass tacks of the gospel. This is where people need to reconcile. In chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 1, 27, he's, he's talking about the unity of the Spirit. He's talking about the unity in the body of Christ, about living out your gospel citizenship, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Philippians 2, remember that powerful text about esteeming others higher than yourself, being of the same mind, intent on one purpose. Philippians 3.17, he's talking about um, imitating Paul. In other words, listen, there's a real call to spiritual unity that's found in humility. But that's not just theoretical stuff. This isn't just ethereal Bible doctrine stuff that's kind of out there and conceptual. No, this is talking about two specific people in the church where all of the doctrine is put to, te- put to the test. The gospel is on the line right now in terms of reconciling within the church. This is a strong church. There's not a whole lot going wrong with it. And there's not a whole lot going wrong. There's nothing really going wrong with it doctrinally. There's some threats, but it's not, it hasn't aired yet. It hasn't, it hasn't, you know, sold out yet in terms of false teaching. It's doing fine, but it's all on the line at this point with two specific people. Who are Yodia and Sintichi? I want to just mention a few things about these ladies. Um, the word Yodia means success, and Sintichi means friendship. I'm not sure if those names were, you know, um, attributes of their personality, but Macedonian women were a bit different than your typical Greek woman in that culture. And in the Greek culture, women were more sublimated, and in the background, in the Macedonian broader kind of countryside culture, the women were movers and shakers. If you go to Acts chapter 16, you remember that the founding at the church of Philippi came from Paul evangelizing women who were by the riverside because there wasn't a place for Jews to meet and worship. And so Lydia, a seller of purple, an entrepreneur, a businesswoman, um, gathered some women together and they were praying and seeking the Lord. And so Paul led her to Christ. And so these women, perhaps Yodia and Sintichi, were part of that group who came to Christ and they were prominent women in the church. No, there's no explanation about really who these women are. Everybody knows who they are. They're, they're, you know, we're not talking about the roles within church leadership, but they're definitely leaders by example. They're servant leaders within the church. Very prominent women. Some people like to say, actually, that the church was housed with one woman, and then it was housed with another woman, and so they were fighting over where the church was going to be housed. I don't know where people, you know, make this stuff up or makes for interesting reading during the week, but who knows? Um, but they were, they were definitely important people. In Acts chapter 17, it says that the women that were won to Christ in Macedonia were chief women. They were women of high standing, so they were honored so the, Paul naming these women, let me, let me make it very clear. It wasn't a pejorative move for Paul to do this. He wasn't dogging women. This is not a throwaway comment like, oh, by the way, those weaker vessel women over there, they need to get something right with God and let's move on. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is, is basing the body of his work where he's talking about Christ becoming a man and humbling himself as a slave to become obedient to the point of death on the cross. Um, that kind of humility practically needs to be put on display with Yodia and Sintichi getting something right for the sake of the church. That's what's going on. That's what's happening here in Philippians 4. This is the application section. 
This is where it all plays out. This is where if there was false teaching going on in the church, Paul would be going after it. There's not, really. I mean, there's threats of that, but, the, you know, false teaching is threatening, but Paul is equating the threat of false teaching with actually interpersonal relationships breaking apart. I mean, one is as dangerous as the other. False teaching and relationships breaking apart, those are all dangerous within the body of Christ. And so he's going after it up front and center. First and foremost, um, common ground produces strong relationships based on eternal commitments. Eternal commitments. Let's talk about what these women had in common. Why do we do that? Because look at verse 2. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sentichi to, let's say it together, agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. The original language here is very helpful regarding what it means to agree. It means to think, think the same thing in the Lord. Think the same thing in the Lord. I mean, this is very instructive in terms of how you can get people back together in the body of Christ. It all begins here. Thinking. One of the mega themes or macro themes of Philippians is the mind. Loving God with your mind. Go back to Philippians 2 verse 5. Remember this phrase? Have this what? Mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying look. Remember Jesus? Remember how he humbled himself to become obedient to the cross? That was all part of a choice. That was his attitude. That was his mindset. Church, corporately, you need to have the same kind of mind. Verse 2 talks about being of one mind or having the same mind. It's a big-time theme in Philippians. You know, how we think has everything to do with how we will live. Right? Right? So gospel humility flooding in our hearts as we've been warmed by the Lord. It changes the way you live. changes how you treat people. changes what you do. It changes how you say things, what you're willing to do. And so Paul here with pastoral skill, though he's naming Yodia and Sentichi publicly, he's doing it very pastorally and tactfully, saying, I'm, I'm entreating you women. I'm, I'm, I'm begging, I'm imploring you women to do something. I want you to think the same thing together in the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, I love the simplicity of this verse. He's not getting into the minutia. He's not even talking about the issue. We don't even really know what the issue was that they had with each other. We don't know what it really represents or the level that it represented. We know it's serious enough for it to show up this up front and center. We know that, but we don't know what's going on. And I love that because the counsel is the same for really all issues where parties are unreconciled. The counsel is this. You need to think about the Lord together right now. You need to think, I have Jesus in common with that person that you're at odds with. In other words, two people need to take a step towards each other in the Lord. You see that? You say, you know, I've been in, have you ever been in conflicts? I mean, where the emotions are high, everything's crazy, you can't think straight, you know, everything's accusational, it's he said, she said stuff, and it's awful. Conflicts are terrible. But the Bible gives us a starting place, and I think a starting and even a finishing place is to think about what you have in common, and what you have in common as Christians, most of all, 
is Jesus. Think about your common love for Christ. Think about the fact that you're both in him. Think about the fact that you both have him. And think about the gospel of Jesus, that he died for each of us. And so if you're in conflict with somebody, you say, we love the same Lord. The same Lord died for each of us. We, we were both washed by the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary. He was buried and he rose again victoriously for each of us. I mean, Yodia and Sintichi, again, the reason they're front and center isn't because Paul's dogging them. He, and you're going to see in the verse, he loves these women. These women were very important sisters of Christ to him. They were co-laborers. They were affirmed women in the church. He's not putting their salvation into question at all. You're going to see that as well. He is affirming these women. He's saying, look, I want to affirm you in the gospel, in the Lord, and I want you to think about each other in terms of what you have in common with each other and take a step towards each other in humility because you're both in the Lord. That's the issue. I love this simplicity. What's, what's not going on here? What's not going on here is minutia isn't being brought up. The issue isn't being, you know, dragged out. There isn't some ongoing debate between the two. There's not a blaming of one over the other. Paul isn't saying, look, Sintichi, it's really, you're, you're bad. He's not doing that. He, he's leaving the issue up to their own conscience and just saying, listen, I'm not blaming one side or the other. I want both of you to take a step towards each other in the midst of the conflict. Takes the emotion out of it. What is going on here is Paul's being very brief. He's being objective. He's being content-oriented. And he's being solutions-oriented in terms of resolution here. They need to agree in the Lord. And if you've been in heavy, serious, complicated conflicts, you know that there's a lot of stuff that even at the end of the conflict that you're not ever going to agree on, right? It, being reconciled doesn't mean that you found ultimate agreement in the nitty-gritty of the conflict. I mean, I know that even in marriages, there are things where the spouse and the other spouse you know, they might be right with God and right with each other, but they never really fully agreed um, with the perspective of the one or the other. And that's okay. That's what Paul is saying here. The point of agreement isn't over the issues. I'm seeing some couples laugh here. The point isn't over the issues. It's about the commonality in the Lord. That's where it gets refreshing. It really does. Because we aren't going to see things eye to eye and agree on a lot of things with each other in this life. There are things that are going to be like loose ends in our lifetime. But we can agree on, hey, we have Christ together. We're both saved. We can take a step towards each other in that way. And that's what Paul is calling for. You know, another point I want to bring up is that I've heard a lot of people say, well, conflict is so bad in the church. It's such an awful testimony. It's so terrible when there are, you know, factions and, you know, things are splitting apart. And yeah, it, it is bad when there's conflict in the church, and it's bad when, when um, it gets public. But what's worse is when it's left undealt with. That's when it's a bad testimony. Uh, Matthew 18, what I read earlier in the, the service, talks about steps towards reconciliation. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about steps towards reconciliation. Galatians 6 talks about going after your brother or sister who's fallen into any sin. We're going to sin. We're going to sin against each other. But guess what? 
The bad testimony is when the sin is ignored or swept under the rug. The good testimony of the church is when sinners sin and there is conflict, that the reconciliation aroma of the gospel is seen in the midst of the conflict and where people forgive each other and where people begin to agree in the Lord together. Guess what happens? That puts the gospel on display. It shows that the gospel works. That's why you have to have some some problems within the church according to God's plan even where he allows those things to happen why so that the gospel can be put on display so that people can reconcile with each other so that people can be made right by the grace of God towards each other and it puts Jesus on display when that happens that's why you deal with sin that's why you deal with issues but you deal with it biblically where you're not trying to you know be right or or vindicated or, or, you know, get your way. That's not the reason that you go into a conflict resolution situation. You go into a conflict resolution situation ultimately so you can agree in the Lord. You find common ground in Jesus and you do the best you can with each other. That's what Paul is doing here. Look what he, look what he does. We have the same Lord. We have the same gospel. That's what he means by agreeing in the Lord. But he, he brings out a third-party kind of plan here for them to reconcile he says verse three yes i ask you also true companion help these women help these women saying look i can't be there so you know we don't know who the true companion is It, it means genuine yoke fellow literally just a fellow christian in the church perhaps a pastor or an elder i don't know some people say oh it's luke it's gotta be luke who knows bible doesn't say Um, uh, You know, it's got to be Epaphroditus, I don't know. But someone who is trusted by both is entered into the situation and there's the ability for this true companion to bring these two women together. And I love the context for which Paul recruits this person. And the person knew who it was he was recruiting. He's saying, okay, Yodia, Sintichi, this is through the letter. They're, they're, you know, front and center. And you, the true companion, you go help these women. That's what Paul is doing through this correspondence. And what he does is he reminds the church that these women are not evil, but these are co-laborers. Look at this. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. This isn't Clement, Bishop, Bishop of Rome. This is just a guy in the church with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. He's saying, listen, we've been in gospel ministry together. We've been co-laboring. We've been proclaiming the gospel. We've been in and on the mission field together, side by side. That's why you get together in the Lord. And then he goes one step further. He gives the highest commendation. And that is this. You have the same Lord, the same gospel. You have the same friend. And it's based on an eternal mission where you're side by side together in the gospel. And then he bases their reconciliation on the fact that they both have an eternal assurance. It's a very strong commendation here that I want you to reflect on. Um, Paul wasn't saying, you know, these women, I don't even know if they're Christians because they're so divisive in the church. He wasn't doubting their salvation. Do you see that? He wasn't saying they're like the enemies of the cross. If you look up a little further in the text, verse 19 of chapter 3, the enemies of the cross, their end is what? Destruction. Here, 
by contrast, the very opposite is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, these women who are in conflict, who are possibly creating a massive faction and split in the church, these women are both saved. These women are both co-laborers. So you as a true companion help these women because they're yoke fellows, they're co-laborers, and their names are written in the book of life. What does that mean to have your name written in the book of life? I know that, um, you know, some people, I've heard quite a few preachers say, well, you know, out of all the ways that you could be listed in the Bible, I'd hate to be listed as Yodia and Sentichi. What a bummer to be listed that way for all of eternity in Scripture. Well, if my names were listed here, if my name was listed here, and then it was listed in the context of the last phrase in verse 3, whose names are in the book of life, I'll take my name being listed as part of a conflict. Because the one thing I want in this lifetime is to know that my name is written in the book of life for the next lifetime, the eternal lifetime. Having your name written in the book of life is very, very significant. Um, And I'll just give you a little bit of a um, sort of a Bible study on the book of life real quickly. Exodus 32, 32, Moses, when he was, um, you know, he had gone away to receive the law at Mount Sinai, he came back. And he came back and the children of Israel had grown discontented with their circumstances. They wanted the the steak and the, you know, the, the milk and the meat of Egypt. And so they were looking for, you know... Uh, a way to worship that desire, so they melted all their gold down and formed a golden calf, which basically represented the fact that they wanted, you know, Big Macs and milkshakes more than the Lord and His will. I mean, they they were worshiping um, what a calf produces, milk and meat. That's what they wanted so bad. So Moses was was hurt by that. God's glory was was at stake by what they were doing, worshiping the golden calf. And Moses sought the Lord and actually put his own spiritual life on the line. Remember when Paul did this in Romans 9? He said, would that I could be accursed for the sake of my kinsmen. Moses does the same thing. We can't lose our salvation. We can't really bargain our salvation for, you know, the children of God. But that's what Moses is trying to do. And the way he said it is this. Uh, He's basically saying, if you forgive their sin, but, but if not, if you don't forgive their sin, please blot me out of the book of life. That's what he says in Exodus 32, 32. I want you to forgive their sin, but if you're not going to do that, just blot me out. Daniel 12, 1 is where Daniel is prophesying about how Michael the arch, archangel um, shall deliver, shall, everyone shall be delivered whose name shall be found in the book. So in Armageddon at the end of um, time when, when the world is going to be blown up, those who are saved from Armageddon, are the ones found in the book of life. Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Those who fear the Lord are the ones who are in the book of remembrance um, who was written by God. Psalm 69, 28. This is a judgment or imprecatory psalm on people who are unrepentant. It says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, Uh, The language here is severe. It's not that you can be in the book of life and actually be erased out of it. What the psalmist is saying here is that if you are under judgment, it means it's as if you were put in and blotted out. It's that severe. And then it means that you were never enrolled in the book in the first place. 
That's the teaching of Scripture. Luke 10, 20. Remember the Lord appointed the 72 disciples to go and cast out demons and win people to Christ and raise, raise the dead? Well, those 72 disciples were warned not to rejoice in the authority that was given to them in the moment, but to, quote, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that what we want to rejoice in? I mean, think about it. In the context of conflict, in the context of, uh, you know, church dynamics, it's so important to remember that our eternity is set because our names are written in the book of life. That's what Paul's doing. Yodia, Sintichi, get together. Why? Because you're both saved. You're both secure where your names are in the book of life. Remember Revelation 17, 8. Um, there is mention by John of people who will be allured or, or led astray by the beast, you know, the Satan figure in the end times. And um, John says they are dwellers on earth whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And then the great white throne judgment is um, the book where, uh, there are two books, there's the book of life and the book where, where people are judged according to their deeds. But Revelation 21, 27 says there's the Lamb's book of life. And aren't you glad that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Significant theme here. One last point. We have common ground that, again, our common ground by way of review, it provides strength of resolve. A heart that's warmed and filled to stand firm in the midst of tough and turbulent times. And then secondly, our common ground being in the Lord produces strong relationships. And then thirdly, our common ground projects a strong witness. Now I bring this up because every, all of these thoughts hang together. Verses 4 and 5 are the command to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice always. Why in the world would you want to rejoice? Well, the only reason why we can rejoice even through very difficult circumstances is that through the eyes of faith, we can see the Lord that we're rejoicing in. And this hangs together in this sense. Paul's saying, look, stand firm, times are tough. Secondly, you've got a church issue that you've got to deal with between Yodia and Sintichi. And when that is dealt with, and when things are made right, what is the spiritual response that you should have? Joy. Joy. Rejoicing in the Lord. And the way I put it here is it's a strong witness. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Guess what? We are supposed to wear our joy on our sleeves. When times are tough... When times are turbulent, when the church isn't stable, it's hard to do that. That's why Paul is commanding it, saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord. What's the common ground? What's the only ground for which you can continually rejoice in the Lord when times are tough? The Lord, he's the common ground. You can only rejoice continually when it's in the Lord. Let's say that together, in the Lord. That's why we rejoice in him. It's the only way we can have an always effect in our life. And even when life is hard and you're down on the ground spiritually, because joy is a fruit of the Spirit, it should be there. 
There should be joy even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of, you know, a hard weekend where my wife is finding news about her mom. You know, those are tough, tough times. But even in the midst of the hardest of times, there should be the seed of joy that germinates and becomes rejoicing. Why? Because circumstances are better? No. Because your joy is in the Lord. It's supernatural. It's a command. And it's a command that's based on the reconciliation that takes place like between Yodia and Sentichi. When, when gospel effects are taking place, you have the fruit of rejoicing that comes out of that. And then there's a promise here at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Paul reminds the church of this because it's easy for us to forget the fact that Jesus is near to us. The Lord is at hand. Why would you rejoice always? Why would you let people know about your joy that you have in the Lord? Because Jesus is right here with you. Never leave you, never forsake you. He's with you always. And guess what? He's coming again. And that's also what this is alluding to. Jesus is here with us, but he's physically, bodily returning to take us home. The Lord is at hand. It's why we rejoice in him. He's coming soon. Do you want to live out this common ground this week? I do. This is where the gospel is put on display. I mean, all of what Paul has addressed in Philippians is building on this kind of application. And the way that we live this life is starting with Jesus and striving for what we have in common in the Lord. Let's be that kind of church where we are together because we are in common with the same Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word. We thank you for the promise of scripture that you are at hand. Lord, you are the reason we can live out the Christian life in this way. The the Christian life and life in general can be very, very tough and difficult. But thank you that you remind us that we don't sweep things under the rug, but we address things because we have the strength of Christ in our hearts. We're warmed by the gospel and by the love of Jesus. We know that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Lord. So we thank you for the kingdom of God. Let us put it on display in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can stand.